listen, here's the secret. If you can't read, you can't do anything else. It's the doorway to education. This is Helen Moore. She's 83 years old. She lives in Detroit, where she's been fighting for better schools for more than 50 years. Reading is the basis of freedom. As far as we're concerned as Black people, we were not allowed to read. Uh, You had all kind of laws to make sure that we couldn't read. And the right to read, as far as we're concerned, is fundamental. From APM Reports, this is Educate. I'm Emily Hanford. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the right to read. Is there such a right? Does the Constitution guarantee a child's right to literacy? That is the focus of a lawsuit filed on behalf of seven children of Detroit schools. The suit says schools are infested with rodents and other vermin, that they lack adequate books, supplies, even teachers, pointing to an eighth grader who had to take over teaching a math class for a month because they're simply were no teachers available. Lawyers for the students say that it's the country's first federal case that pushes for literacy as a right under the U.S. Constitution. The suit seeks a number of remedies, including evidence-based literacy programs and a system to monitor conditions that deny access to literacy. The lawsuit was first filed in federal court back in 2016. Helen Moore says the case is crucial. With this case, we can push forward and make sure that The basis of our education is literacy. But a circuit court judge dismissed the lawsuit before students had a chance to make their arguments before the court. The judge said learning to read is of incalculable importance. But he said there is no right to literacy protected by the U.S. Constitution. The plaintiffs appealed that ruling. And last week, in a decision many people are calling historic, a three-judge panel of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said that there is indeed a right to a basic minimum education. The opinion said this, Access to a foundational level of literacy provided through public education has an extensive historical legacy and is so central to our political and social system as to be implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Helen Moore heard the news of the decision from the lead attorney. And I started screaming when he said, we we won, we won, and it's still sinking in. To me, this is better than Brown versus Ford. After all these years that I've been working as an activist for our children, that was some of the best news I have heard. Joining me on the podcast to talk about what's become known as the right to read case is one of the lead attorneys for the plaintiffs. My name is Evan Kamenker. I'm a professor of law and the former dean at the University of Michigan Law School. And I became involved in this case because on occasion I do pro bono work on behalf of groups and uh, other lawyers who are trying to bring targeted lawsuits to improve social justice. Well, let's start with the news. A federal court has ruled that children have a constitutional right to a basic minimum education that would plausibly lead to literacy. What's the significance of that ruling? What's the news here? The significance is that finally a court has acknowledged the abysmal and decrepit conditions of the public schools in Detroit and has recognized that the Constitution actually speaks to that situation. That if the state is going to hold itself out, as as all states have, for over 150 years of not just providing public education, but requiring students to have public education, 
the state has to come through on its promise to provide even a minimally adequate education so that people can become literate and participate in our political democracy. And this is a case that was filed in federal court. A lot of litigation around education happens in state court. Why federal court? Well, litigation about educational reform was started in federal court in the 1960s and 70s. And at that point, a case went to the Supreme Court. Actually, a handful of cases went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court turned away a certain kind of claim, a claim that schools ought to be roughly financially equal across every given state. And I think at that point, reform-minded lawyers realized that they would have a better opportunity in state court. So for the next, let's say, 30 to 40 years, most of the litigation then shifted to state court. And there have been some spectacular successes under a variety of state constitutions. But there have been other places, including the state of Michigan, where the state Supreme Courts held that despite constitutional commitments to and promises of of quality public education, uh, the courts did not play a role in enforcing that. And that's what prompted uh, us to return to federal court to see, well, maybe it's time to go back there again and see if we can develop claims that were not advanced 40 years ago to which the courts might be more open today. The case is known as the Gary B case. Who, who's Gary B? What's the situation he and the other plaintiffs in this case were in? Well, the suit was originally brought on behalf of seven different students who populated five different public schools in the uh, Detroit School District. And they differed in terms of their specific ages and grades, but they all suffered a variety of the same problems. Um, Some of the plaintiffs have given interviews indicating that their classes were sometimes canceled or school even shut down because the furnaces didn't work and the classes would be freezing. Students would see their own breath. They'd be huddled in jackets. Uh, Students come in in the morning, and if their teachers hadn't beat them to it, there'd be rat feces on the ground. There were broken or contaminated drinking fountains. Uh, The toilets didn't work and were falling apart. Windows were broken in some cases and locked shut in others. And just a variety of different kinds of physical and atmospheric circumstances. The saddest thing was the books and the resources that they had. This is Jamaria Hall. He went to one of the high schools named in the lawsuit. There were six books in the classroom of 35 students. And then... The books are from 1998. I was born in 1999. So, I mean, the books that in my classroom are older than me. So I've never been a great reader or, or really proficient in reading. So I still struggle today. Jamari is in college now, but it's been challenging. He's working with tutors, trying to catch up. I've been a graduate for three years and still have freshman credits because every day is a struggle for me to get better and and more proficient in every skill of education that I can, because like I said, it's like I missed out on the education. So imagine that you're a student who goes to a school like this. Imagine what it does to your motivation. Imagine what it does to your perception about whether people actually care 
whether you learn or not. Lawyer Evan Kamenker says all the plaintiffs in the lawsuit have been harmed by going to schools that did not provide them with even the most basic resources. So all of our students experienced these conditions and had the same kind of emotional reaction to it, which is no one cares about us, we don't count. From a legal perspective, it matters because one of the most basic rights we have in our constitution is the right of self-governance, the right of political participation. And as the court notes, uh, one really can't do that. One can't engage in, in knowledgeable and detailed conversations about public policy. Uh, one can't even read descriptions of ballot propositions to know how to vote. Um, at the worst case scenario, people who don't read well try not to volunteer for activities that require reading, which of course voting does. So in a legal sense, the panel uh, correctly noted that having the ability to become literate is necessary to having the ability to become a political participant. More generally, I think as we all know, uh, it's very difficult to be upwardly socially mobile, which was one other driver that public schools, public education is supposed to provide. Uh, the whole point of that is to become literate. Yeah, a central component of the argument is that students in Detroit uh, were being denied their right to literacy and that this was in part a problem because students in other places, particularly in schools serving predominantly white and affluent students, for example, that they are being taught to read. What I've been finding in my reporting over the past several years is that this is not necessarily the case. Many students are not being taught in ways that align well with what scientific research has found about how skilled reading actually develops. How does this case potentially change the game on all of that by asserting that there is a right to read protected by the U.S. Constitution? What changes for students in schools that may not be in the kind of dire straits that Detroit schools were in, but nevertheless, for students who are in schools that are not using curriculum and materials that line up with the scientific research on reading? So a narrow and broad answer. Uh, the narrow answer is the lawsuit doesn't directly touch those students. The lawsuit is really surgically precise to focus on the worst of the worst schools in the city of Detroit and arguing that those students at least have to have a plausible opportunity to learn to read uh, of the sort that is taken for granted every place else. That said, in a broader sense, we do hope that the, laws, the lawsuit shines a light on the importance of literacy writ large. And as you just said, based on your own expertise, uh, that, that helps people understand that even elsewhere where we take it for granted, we can do better. Um, it's not a surprise today that, frankly, all across the nation, proficiency tests indicate that our students, uh, a lot of students read behind grade level and, and graduate high school reading behind grade level. Not, not to the extent of the plaintiff kids, but just more than we would like to think. And a lot of that could be rectified if more schools, even in uh, average or even well-to-do districts, paid more attention to the science of teaching literacy. Yeah, I mean, a lot comes down to, in this particular case, the meaning of plausibly leads to literacy. I mean, you point out that there are schools in Detroit where proficiency rates were near zero or zero at many schools. But you also pointed out in your complaint that only 46% of third graders across the entire state were proficient in reading. 
And I guess the question is, is a system that gets fewer than half of its students reading proficiently a system that is providing an education that plausibly leads to literacy? Well, that's a great question. Um, That statistic really shows that education can be approved across the board, not just in Michigan, but across the country. But this lawsuit is not designed to cure all evils, so to speak. This lawsuit is designed to, to show that there are particular pockets where we would say it's not just that the kids are not becoming literate, it's that they don't really have the opportunity to become literate. And I should be clear, the right we are, we are seeking and was vindicated by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals is not a right to a particular outcome. It is not a right to be literate. That's not something that our Constitution can plausibly support. Uh, it is the right to have the opportunity to become literate. So it's about, as we discussed, having environmental conditions that make it really possible for students to learn the very basic things that the entire system of compulsory education is designed to teach them. I follow a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of parents and a lot of educators who are very concerned about the way that kids are being taught to read in many schools across the country. And there was a lot of celebration of this Um, decision, hoping that it will help change reading instruction in their schools. Um, Will it? Well, it's a small and targeted step within the judicial system. But I think we all know that uh, sometimes small and targeted steps by courts in the middle of a social movement are important for catalyzing a renewed focus on and understanding of the problem including by political actors. So the, the, the hope would be that even if this particular case requires a targeted and focused remedy, albeit one that is critically important to these kids, um, that like many others in, in the sphere of social justice or racial injustice, that a first step by a court to say, here's a problem that we ought to be focused on Um, Even if maybe we, the courts, can't address the problem more broadly, other people can pick up the mantle and run with it. So hopefully by giving support and stirring the passion of people who deeply care about the quality of education across this country, uh, it would be wonderful if this lawsuit would catalyze more people uh, demanding better from their state and local school districts. The prominent legal scholar Lawrence Tribe said that this case could make history much the way Brown v. Board of Education did. Could it? Well, I think if it uh, if it goes as broadly as it could, I mean, I think he was assuming, for example, if the Supreme Court uh, would affirm it the way that it did in Brown, uh, I think it's a nice, you might call it a, a complimentary bookend. I mean, Brown versus Board of Education was about you know, who gets educated and basically saying states cannot exclude essentially black school children from their better systems. And this is about what they get educated with, basically saying that similar students are not allowed to be excluded from attaining even the basic building blocks of literacy. So what does happen next with this case? Well, If there is no further review in the case, then according to the panel decision, it gets returned down to the district court. 
And at this point, uh, we, the plaintiffs, have the opportunity to further discover the facts and prove our case to the district court to prove that the conditions are as bad as we have shown in the complaint, uh, and then work with the district court to fashion a remedy. Of course, it is also possible that there will be further review in this case, either by the full Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in what's called an en banc ruling, that would be all 16 judges rather than the three that have already decided this case, or there could be further review by the United States Supreme Court. Would you like to bring this case before the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, at this point, I would rather go back to the district court just so that we can develop our claims and prove our claims. Uh, There would always be an opportunity later for the defendants to continue to appeal whatever final judgment that the district court might render in our favor uh, and appeal that back up to the Sixth Circuit and then to the Supreme Court, if appropriate. So I'm not saying that uh, the Supreme Court couldn't get involved even later. But what I'm saying is uh, we really want relief for these kids now. This lawsuit was now filed almost four years ago. So in our view, we would really like to get moving as soon as possible. And that means back to the district court so we can prove up our claims and then start talking about a particular remedy for these kids. Let's go back to the the possibility that it ever gets to the Supreme Court. What has the Supreme Court said in the past about the idea of a right to a basic education or a right to literacy? Like, what do you expect you would be up against in trying to convince the Supreme Court of that basic argument? Well, this comes back to the earlier discussion of the history, because it was in the 1970s and 80s that the court really last addressed claims about the constitutional status of school education. And in the most famous case called Rodriguez against the San Antonio School District, the state had provided unequal funding, as is still true across the country, where certain school districts got more money than others because a lot of the financial arrangements were based on property values and and local taxes. And the Supreme Court said that there is no general right to education in our constitution, but it held open the question of whether there might be a right to a minimally adequate education, which it then, in that case and a few others, articulated in terms of basic literacy. So it is the holding open of that question back in the 1970s that invited us to return to that question today. And that's the question that the panel answered in our favor here, that even though there's no general right to education, as the Supreme Court has said on many occasions, there is in fact a right to this basic low-level minimum that the court had held open. Okay. Is there anything I didn't ask you about? Anything else you want to say? This is a pathbreaking decision because it's the first time that a court of appeals has accepted the invitation of the Supreme Court from the 1970s to find that there is a right to a basic minimal education through which students can plausibly attain literacy. Uh, The lawsuit is focused on the most egregious deprivation of public education and is addressed to try and rectify it to just a minimal level. 
That's a major step for a court, but it is still a very small step in the big scheme of things with respect to educational quality. Courts can't, and I think actually shouldn't solve the entire problem, but it is this court's highlighting that problem that should embolden people who are concerned about this issue to then extend upon its holding and continue the debate in the political arena. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it, Emily. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Bye. That was lawyer Evan Kamaker. The decision by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals is now being reviewed by the defendants. The lead defendant in the case is the governor of Michigan. When the suit was filed, that was Republican Rick Snyder. The current governor is Democrat Gretchen Whitmer. So far, her office has not said whether it plans to appeal the federal court's decision. That's it for this episode. Please share and send us your thoughts and questions. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, or you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. We have lots more online about what children in cities like Detroit and all over the country need to learn to become good readers. We've collected the many articles and podcast episodes we've produced on this topic at a special collections page. You can find it at apmreports.org reading. This episode was produced by me, Emily Hanford, and our new reporter here at APM Reports, Chris Peake. He's going to be working with us on more reporting about how children are being taught to read. This podcast was edited by Chris Julin and mixed by Veronica Rodriguez. We partner with The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, the Hollyhock Foundation, and Stephen and Wendy Gall. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>